0: Welcome to Grace Harvest Church's weekly podcast. For more information about Grace Harvest Church or to find out more about something you hear during the podcast, visit us online at graceharvestchurch.org. Now listen in and allow God to speak to you through this week's message. We've been doing a series called Pursuit 2020. And last week, Pastor Noah, he thought he was over here, Pastor Noah shared a really excellent message on the power of pursuing people, why we're called as a church to pursue people. And when we had mapped out this series, one of the things we said we wanted to talk about was pursuing people, because that's why we exist as a church. We exist to pursue people for the sake of the gospel. Today, I want to continue on that, and my message today is, I want to look at what it means to pursue people with the vision and the heart that Jesus had. With Jesus as our model, with Jesus as the one who indwells us, I want to talk about how we're to see people, how we're to see our city. Because how many of you know that so much in life is about what we see? So much in life is about our perspective. Many of you probably heard this fun little story, but... It starts with the idea, what do you see? Two shoe salesmen were sent to a country to sell shoes. When they arrived, they found out that the people in that country did not wear shoes. Right? The first salesman called his home office and in a panicky voice exclaimed to his manager, give me another assignment. I could never sell shoes here because nobody here wears shoes. The second salesman called his home office so excited he could hardly contain himself. Bursting with enthusiasm, he exclaimed to his manager, send me all the shoes you have because nobody here wears shoes. How many of you know it's all about perspective? So many times in life, you will respond to things based upon what you see. Your filters will determine what you see. What's in your heart will determine what you see. And this applies to everything. It applies to your relationships. It applies to your job. It applies to your church, to the city that you live in. You know, many years ago, uh, when I f- after I'd been living here for a-, a number of years, I was discouraged. I was discouraged with pastoral ministry. I was discouraged with Moses Lake. I, I didn't want to be here. I didn't want to leave this church anymore. I was kind of looking for a way out. And I remember at that time, I, I found myself, you know, looking upon my city and my perspective or my vision of my city was, was kind of marred and cloudy with kind of a negative attitude about Moses Lake, a negative attitude about the region. And uh, I went to see a pastor who's a leader in our movement, kind of at that time he was the main leader of our movement. And I went, I went to Portland, Oregon, I sat down with him. And I shared my story of woe. I poured out my heart to him. And as I told him my story and my discouragement, he listened very, you know, very thoughtfully. He was, he was really patient with me. And he got done and he told me his own story about how he had begged God to release him from Portland, Oregon years ago. And how God had changed his perspective. And the way God changed his perspective is he sent a man to their church. This man was a, it was an, a guest speaker that they brought in. And he had a gift of prophecy, he had a prophetic gift. And in one of the meetings, this man spoke to him and said, You don't love your city. You don't have a heart for your city. And the reason you're struggling in your ministry and the reason that you're not seeing God bless the church is because your attitude toward the church and toward the city is wrong. Your perspective is marred. And because of that, God isn't blessing what you're putting your hands to because you don't even have a heart for it. You have to love your city, you have to love your church. You have to love the things in front of you that God has given you in order for you to be able to put your full heart into it. Amen? So many things in life are about perspective. Jesus, oh, I'll finish the story. At the end of my conversation with him, he said this to me. He said, you know, Doug, I believe the hand of God's on your life and you can go just about anywhere you want to and I believe God will bless it. But I want to tell you something. If you'll work through the issues that you have with your city and you'll love your city, you'll start to notice things change. And he was right. I started to notice things change when I adjusted my perspective of the city because Jesus Christ loves Moses Lake. Jesus Christ loves the people of Moses Lake. You know, Jesus told us to go into all the world, to make disciples, to share good news, to pray for the sick, to to activate the gospel with actions. And when he did that, how many of you know he was speaking from Jerusalem, and he said, go to the uttermost parts of the earth. And if you were to take out a map right now, if we were to throw a map of the world up here on these screens, and you were to see Jerusalem, and you were to see Moses Lake, how many of you know that's the uttermost parts of the earth? Moses Lake is way over here compared to where Jerusalem is. So Jesus loves our city. And he calls all of us who are his followers to see people and to see where God has placed them with his eyes. He calls us to love our city and the individual people in our city. Our presence here as a church is to bless and benefit our city. Moses Lake and its residents should become a better place because we are here. For this to happen, we have to see the people of our city like he sees the people of our city. Amen? Amen. So that takes me to the text, the scripture I want to share with you, and I'll be calling on our volunteers here in a couple minutes, but I'd like you to see the vision that Jesus had for people. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 37 is my key text. It'll be up here on the screen. If you have a Bible and you want to follow along in your Bible, go ahead and pull it out and turn to Matthew, the first gospel first book of the New Testament, you go back about two-thirds of the way in your Bible, you'll find this book of Matthew. Go to the ninth chapter, go to the 35th verse, and this is what you'll find. It says this, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues. The synagogue would have been kind of like a church. Teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Let's break this down a little bit. Let's look at what this text teaches us. The first thing I want you to see about Jesus and His vision for His flock and for His harvest is this. Jesus had a heart for cities and villages. It says that right in the text. He loved the large places and He loved the smaller areas. See, Jesus loves wherever, wherever people are. Amen? Not just that, He loves His whole earth. He loves all of His creation. But he loved the Jerusalem, the sprawling metropolis of that day, and he loved the Nazareth and the Bethlehem. He went to the big cities. He went to the small places because he cared about people. And he wanted people to hear the good news and experience the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, he was teaching in churches, synagogues, and he was proclaiming the gospel outside. He was both concerned with the people of God That already knew God and he was concerned with people that are out there, that are outside of the synagogue, outside of the church. He didn't just focus all of his attention on the synagogue, neither did he neglect the synagogue so that he could reach the people out there. He cared about both. And that's a good pattern for us. We should care about the house of God, the people that are here, our family, our brothers and sisters, but we can never just care about each other at the exclusion of those that are outside our doors. Am I talking to anybody? And it says that he demonstrated the power of this gospel of the kingdom by healing diseases and afflictions. Now this is really powerful because these two words capture some really relevant ideas for the time we live. First of all, He healed diseases. Those are physical illnesses, sicknesses, diseases, even injuries. The Greek word even represents things like injuries that happen, you know, to us from from falls, broken bones, whatever it may be. But then the word affliction, the Greek word malakia, it it means a debility and infirmity that can apply to both physical, emotional and mental weakness or disease. So here's what the scripture teaches. When Jesus went out and he healed, when he proclaimed, there's a new kingdom coming, and this is the kingdom of heaven, and it's invading earth, and the atmosphere of that kingdom is rightness, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That kingdom is coming. That kingdom comes with me, and as I proclaim it, I make whole and I make right what's been broken, what's been diseased, What's been afflicted? And so he came to the diseased and the afflicted, and he healed not just physical ailments, but he healed mental disease and mental ailments, and we know he even cast out demons. Darkness was real. There was darkness in that age, just like there is in our age, and people had become controlled by demonic presence, and Jesus liberated them from that, restored their minds, restored their bodies, and made them whole again. Amen? Anybody out there? And then I want you to notice what it says. It says, Jesus saw the crowds. And when he saw them, he saw them with a different kind of vision. This Greek word saw, it describes more than merely noticing an object. It could also be translated perceived, pay attention, experience, and understand. See, Jesus looked deeply into the people and noticed their true state, and their true need through His Father's eyes. His vision of the people is what motivated Him. You know, last week Noah touched on this. Jesus had that ability to look at a crowd and see the individuals. You see, He could look at a group like this and focus in His attention on each one. And He had the ability to not just look at you, but to read you, to know you, To know your pain, to know your suffering, to know your victories, to know your pleasures and your joys, to know your sin, and yet embrace you and love you. He had the ability to see people as individuals and to value them. Amen? And He calls us to see people that way. It's it's too easy, isn't it? In the time that we live, it's too easy to group people into, into groups, into parties, It's too easy to identify people by the group that they belong to. We live in the age of classifications. If we can put people over here in an area that's uncomfortable to us, that we don't like to deal with, and then we can stand on the outside looking in, and we can demonize them and scapegoat them, we don't have to know them to show compassion to them, to love them, or to bring good news to them. And that's what they did in that time as well. That, you know, human nature factions us, breaks us up. And God's nature, the nature of the gospel is reconciliation. God comes into the midst of those kind of situations and he calls us like his son Jesus to lay our life down for the sake of the other. And the other is always the person that is unlike us. So he calls us to the very people we want to avoid, we want to reject. He calls us to those people to love them. Can I get an amen? amen? Now, I want to illustrate this by getting my volunteers up here. So if you raised your hand and you want to be a part of this, come on up here. And uh, I'm going to move these waters here. And so those of you, first of all, those of you, come on up on the platform. Oh, this guy's grabbing a mince, breath mince. He's smart. He knows he's going to be in the huddle, right? So uh, maybe four, five, six of you get in a huddle. And then I'm going to need maybe two volunteers to be my afflicted people, my, my hurting, my broken people. I'm going to need a couple of you. I'm going to need one of you maybe to be down on the ground like you're hurt on your knee. Need another one maybe to lay down on your side or something. Is there somebody that can do that for me? So you be my wounded one. Okay, you've been beat up. The world's knocked you out. Can I get another volunteer to just be a wounded person that's afflicted here? One of you and do that? Jump in there. Okay, and then which? Oh, yeah. Okay, Talon, you're going to be the bad guy, right? You're going to be kind of a... Okay, now the rest of you, get in a huddle and tell, and I want you to go kind of off on the side there and wait for my cue, and then I want you to be as menacing as you can be. When you come over, I want you to come over like you're really trying to break in and and do damage to the people in this group. Just don't really hurt anybody, okay? Okay, just want to make that clear. Okay, now the thing that I want you to see here, this is really important. How many of you are football fans? Okay, you know that a football team huddles, right? They get in a huddle. Have you ever noticed... How quick huddles are, they get in a huddle, the quarterback usually like Russell Wilson's down on one knee, he's telling his guys what their assignment is, they're calling the play, it usually lasts, I don't know, 5, 10, 15 seconds at the most, and then they get up, kind of clap their hands, they break, they all go to their assignment and the play happens. See, huddles are meant to be short times of getting strategy and getting encouraged for the assignment you have. You could say church on a Sunday is like a huddle. That's what we're doing, we're huddling, we're getting from the scripture and from worship and from prayer, what we're called to do, reach our world, reach our city, and then we're going out and we're really engaging the game. And how many of you know, an hour and a half on Sunday is nothing compared to all you have in your week. So this is a huddle. But you weren't meant to live in a huddle. And see, this is what happens, churches get into huddles. They become inward focused. One of the biggest concerns I have as a pastor is I never want us to become a country club. I never want us to become a church where the people of our congregation are concerned about us, where it's all about me and my comforts and, you know, where, where it's always about my life My happiness, my comfort, I hope the sermon's good, I hope the music's good, I hope the children's ministry and the nursery's good, youth ministry's good, I hope everything's good for me because church is about my happiness. That's not New Testament Christianity. New Testament Christianity is you come in to be a part of a body where you get restored and healed so you can be put to the work of the kingdom and you can reach the world around you and the people that God gives you relationship with, the people in your circle, right? Right? So if you, if you understand something, when churches become inward focused, they become like a huddle. And I want you to notice what happens when you're inward focused. The first thing that happens is you got some hurting people here, and they can't be ministered to. And then the other thing, Talon, you come on over here now. You be that menacing one. And you start messing with these people and these people. Okay, so he's, he's like the, the, the enemy, the devil. He's like people that are even motivated in dark, in dark ways, okay? So he's over here messing around. Now... Now, you can stop for just a second. (laughs) Just hold back for a second. Now, the other thing I want you to notice is when you're in a huddle, the longer you're in that huddle, the more you start to notice things about each other, right? You start to notice each other's faults. You know, probably somebody in that huddle right now that's looking at somebody else's clothing and going, what is, why did they wear that? You start noticing each other's breath. And if you stay there long enough, you'll get really annoyed with each other right? And that's what happens in churches that become inward-focused. Churches that become inward-focused, they start noticing each other's problems and faults, and that's all they care about. And they, nick, they nitpick at it, and they, they just focus on, on the negative. But I'm going to show you what happens when you turn outside. Can I have you in the huddle? Turn around now and get back in, you know, kind of where you are, but turn around and, um, and just kind of link arms and face outward. And now, well, link arms for a moment. Now... A talent, I want you to try to bother people, and I want you to just make sure you repel him. And if you need to unlink to do it for a second, oh, wait, don't hurt him. Don't hurt him. Did he hurt him? Okay, okay, okay. Okay, the other thing is, have you noticed? Have you noticed what's going on here? I want you all to take action and, and help these people out, right? So now, you know, that's what happens in the huddle. You, you can break your leg and, and, and help out your brothers and your sisters, right? Help them up right, put a hug around them, right? You see that? That's what happens when a church faces outward. It sees the needs around it, and it also is able to repel the darkness that tries to attack it. Can we say thank you to our volunteers? Good job. Thank you, guys. You see, they couldn't see the need. They couldn't see the adversary until they focused their attention off of themselves and their little group and they began to look outside the world around them when we look outside at the world around us we see what we're really called to because i want to tell you something if you're a christian if you're a follower of jesus christ if you're here today and you say jesus is savior he's lord i follow him i'm after him i want to know him more i want to love him i want to be obedient to him he's he's my lord that means master if you're that person you were never created for self-absorption. You were never created just to focus all the attention of your life upon your own happiness and your own comfort. You weren't created for that. You were created to give your life away for the sake of the other. You were created to lay your life down for the sake of the other. And, and different people in this room are going to have different expressions of that. Some are going to do that for the sake of, we have a, a, a brother here that does that for the sake of the unborn. We have other people here that you're going to do it for the sake of maybe the poor in our community, or maybe somebody that's caught in in prostitution, or maybe you're here and your main ministry is going to be to those who are in addiction, or those being sex trafficked, or you're just your main call is you're going to reach out to that next door neighbor or that person you work with. But regardless of who your circle is and what your calling is, you were created for the sake of the other. And I'm going to tell you the most miserable group of people on earth, the most miserable group of people. I've ever seen are self-absorbed selfish Christians who focus the whole of their life on themselves Because see it's antithetical to the way we were created in Christ Jesus We were created in Christ Jesus to give ourselves away for others But when we live for self, we go against the very nature of the kingdom And we become a people who in name are a Christian But who in action are atheists We are practical atheists. A practical atheist is an atheist by action. You're not really showing that you believe in God by the way you live. You understand that? So we're called to be like Jesus. And Jesus gives his life away for the sake of the other. He turns life away from the vortex of self and its ability to suck everything into itself and make everything about itself. And he gives his life away so that others can live and be lifted up. That's the beauty of the gospel. Amen. Which takes me to the next point. When Jesus is in this particular story, the next part says that he was motivated by compassion. He was moved by compassion. That word compassion means to feel something deeply or viscerally, to yearn, to have compassion, to pity. It means to be moved in the inward parts, to be impacted. Have you ever had a need of someone, a broken need of someone that came across your life, move you so deeply that you almost felt inside like you were sick? Or there was a a groaning inside. Have you ever had that? And here's what we do in our culture. When we feel that many times, we try to get away from it. And God wants it to move us so that we can take action and be moved with compassion. He was moved with compassion and he had compassion on people because Why? They were harassed and helpless. And those two words are interesting. Harassed means to literally skin something, to flay it, to lacerate it. And metaphorically, it means to trouble or to weary or to beat down. And then the second word, helpless, is a Greek word which means to throw or to cast out, to hurl, to scatter, to disperse. And so Jesus is looking at the people and he's noticing that they're being all cut up by life. They're being all cut up by evil and that they're being cast aside, dispersed, They're being scattered, they're being separated, they're being moved away from one another. He's noticing the division. And what's his answer? He perceived they were like sheep without a shepherd. They needed true shepherds who cared for them, who loved them gently and truthfully, under Jesus the chief shepherd. And then it says, he looked up and he perceived the greatness of this harvest. He looked at all this crowd and he perceived the greatness of the harvest and he was provoked by the lack of laborers. Matthew 9, 36 and 37 in the message says this, it says, When he looked out over the crowds, his heart broke. So confused and aimless they were, like sheep with no shepherd. What a huge harvest, he said to his disciples. How few workers. You know, the, the problem in the time of Jesus is the problem now. You know, I'm going to talk straight to you for a minute about something, but a lot of times we see this even in our church. A lot of times, people see me up front speaking, and, and so they figure, you know, they, they face a situation in their life, and they call the office, and, and they, they want to talk to Pastor Doug because I'm up front talking. They want to talk to Pastor Doug, and Brandy will answer the phone and give people many options. We have several different counselors. We have our pastoral staff. I mean, we probably have about four, five, six options for people to go to. No, no, it's got to be Pastor Doug. I'm sorry, he's not available. His schedule's full. Well, what, what's what's the matter? Does he not have time for me? Exactly. He doesn't have time for you. Because I'm not called to be everybody's pastor. Sometimes people come to me and they'll say, You're my pastor. I have to talk to you. And I'll say, No, I'm one of your pastors. We actually have a staff full of pastors. And that's our call. Our call is to have a team that equips the saints for the work of ministry. We have many people that can do ministry. Many people that are as capable or more capable that have giftings I don't have, that have the ability to help you, and I don't have it. And the beautiful thing is, is as we grow as a church and we understand that all of us have a role to play in caring for people, we start to recognize it's not just up to the pastoral staff. It's not just up to Doug or Raul or Drew or Noah, but it's also up to me. I am my brother. I am my son sister's keeper. I'm called to care for one another. and that's, that's the way it works. Y'all are being quiet. Wow, what happened there? Sounds like I might be touching on something, huh? You see, we're called to be a church of many laborers, many workers who are caring for the many people and to turn our attention out there into a city and into a world that desperately needs the good news of Jesus. That's a good place for an amen. Now, I want to illustrate it. I have a little bit of time, and I want to illustrate it with a story that's just a beautiful story of what I mean, how Jesus could pick out the individual in the crowd. I want you to see how Jesus looked at people and healed them. We're going to go to John chapter 5, verses 2 through 9, a great story here, and we're going to learn about a man who's healed at the pool of Bethesda. And I want you to notice this story, John 5, verses 2 through 9. This is what we'll illustrate it with. It says, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five-roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, He said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. I want you to notice several things here. Let's first talk about Bethesda. Bethesda, the word means a house of mercy, a house of grace, a place of outpouring. At Bethesda, which was right near the temple complex, is actually within the the whole area of the temple complex, there were two pools, and they were fed by natural springs. At uncertain intervals, they didn't know when the intervals were, fresh water would be released into the springs, and the water would stir. A lot of ideas and legends developed around that, that were connected to the stirring of the waters. One of them was that angels stirred the waters, and whoever got into the water first, after the angels stirred and touched it, would be healed. As we'll see, they came to this house of mercy, this house of grace, this place of outpouring, and instead they encountered the one who is embody, the embodiment of the house of mercy, the house of grace, and the place of outpouring, Jesus. It was kind of like Soap Lake, you know, many years ago, and even now, many years ago, Soap Lake was marketed, and people were encouraged to move to Soap Lake because the waters were, had such a high mineral content that they would say, if you got in the waters, it could heal afflictions of your body. And we have places like that around the world. We have hot springs in different places. The, the city I was born in has hot springs there, and people would come there for the medicinal and the, the healing waters. They, there's places called healing waters, right? That's kind of how Bethesda was. It was like a couple of springs, and people would come there, and they would, be, they, would, they would go there to be healed, to get relief from their pain. And so all these people are waiting, and it says there was a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. And in the midst of this group of people, we read that Jesus noticed this one particular man. Now, listen, I want to make something clear. This doesn't mean that Jesus didn't heal all the people there. It also doesn't mean that He did. It just means that the writer wanted us to know about this one in particular. Now, I'm going to tell you something that I found interesting. This pool, these pools were there for years and years and years. All the time Jesus would have gone through the temple complex, these pools were there. That means there were always invalids, there were always people in need at those pools. And for whatever reason, up to this point, Jesus hadn't healed them all. Because otherwise, he would have walked in there and it would have been empty. But it was filled with people in need. And Jesus may have stopped right there and healed all of them. But the writer, John, wanted us to know about this one story. He wanted us to see that Jesus cared about the one. But it's also possible that he just went to that one and he healed him. Because he perceived his faith. He understood where he was. See, the church, like, like this is for us too. The church, both internationally, globally, and here locally, the church is full of broken and needy people. We don't all have needs on the outside, but many of us in this room have a lot of brokenness in our life. Our church is full of broken and needy people, and I'm glad. I like that we're the kind of place where people can bring their brokenness and lay it out, and yet Jesus notices the one. I was talking to a man recently, and I'm not meaning to be negative about this, but I was talking to a man recently, I had met him at a grocery store, and he periodically will attend our church. And uh, so I I ran into him, and I was talking with him, and I asked him, what's your experience when you attend our church? I, I, I would like some genuine feedback. And he told me he loved our worship, and he loved our church, and then he made a statement, he said, but you know, I say this about your church, your church definitely has like the highest share of the least of these of any church I've been in in the community, meaning broken, messed up people. That's what he said. And I, at that moment, I thought, is he criticizing us? And I was like, yeah, kind of like Jesus did. And he was like, oh, well, yeah, I didn't mean it like that. And, and I was like, yes. And at that moment, I was so grateful. A couple of weeks, no, it was actually last Sunday. Last Sunday, I'm standing on the front row. I'm worshiping God. I'm looking around. And I felt like the Holy Spirit quickened something in me. The Holy Spirit said, I, I, just, I, I looked around and I thought, you know what? We're a messy church. And I'm glad. I love our messiness. We may not be put together. We may not be cool and slick. We may not have all of our act together and the greatest presentation, but I'm going to tell you what, God is here and people that are hungry are here, and this is a place where the broken can come, and they can get near that pool of mercy, that pool of grace, that place of outpouring, and they can experience a touch of the Holy Spirit and experience the healing virtue of God. I'm glad we're that kind of church. Amen. And this one man, he's an invalid for 38 years. He's suffered a long time. And yet what happened? He kept, giving, he kept showing up. He hadn't given up. He was still at the pool waiting 38 years. Many times when people are addicted or seem stuck in bad behavior, our tendency is to give up on them. We've even given up on ourselves. Some of you in this room, you know, you've come to points in your life where maybe you're even here today and you're like, you know, I'm done. I'm done with church. I'm done with people. I'm done with... I'm done. I can't take it anymore. And can I just challenge you and encourage you? We're a house of healing. We're a house of grace, mercy, a place of outpouring. This is a place where you can come. This is a... Keep coming. Don't, don't quit. Listen, he waited 38 years for his touch, but he came because he kept showing up. And finally, he met the living yeah. house of grace. And His name was Jesus. Many of us in this room have suffered with issues for years, and some of you are at a place of desperation. And I want to tell you, even if you're here today and you're contemplating taking your own life, if you're contemplating giving up on it, can I just appeal to you? Can I beg you in the name of the Lord? Don't do that. Your life counts. It's valuable. You're a beautiful creation of God. If you're a man and you don't like being called beautiful and you're an awesome creation of God, right? Right? There's never been anybody like you. You're a unique expression. Don't give up. Keep showing up at the pool. God wants to touch you and heal you. Am I talking to anybody? And then Jesus saw him lying there, and I love this. Listen, Jesus saw him lying there, and he knew his story. The Greek word here, saw, means to perceive, to become acquainted with by experience. Jesus saw this man for who he really was, and he understood his pain, his story, his rejection, his loneliness, and all that his long life of suffering had brought him. You know, that's risky. In order to minister to people, you, you have to take the time to look into their lives and get their story, and that's dangerous, right? That's dangerous. But we got to look into other people's lives. And then he asked him something. He asked him, do you want to be healed? How many of you have ever read that and you thought, that's kind of weird? Jesus didn't just, you know, oh, you're, you're here for 38 years, you've been afflicted. Boom! He didn't do that. I want you to notice the order of what happens. He asks him, do you want to be healed? He doesn't require it. He doesn't force himself on the man. He doesn't force his gift on the man. He isn't pushy. He wants the man to articulate his need and his powerlessness. Some of you that are here today, you're facing situations in your life, and you've said this in your mind, I don't need to pray. God knows my need. God knew his need. Jesus knew his need. He still asked him, do you want to be healed? And Jesus is asking some of you in this room, do you want to be healed? Do you really want to be healed? You see, he wants us to articulate so we'll get out of ourself and our self-absorption. He wants us to say, this is my need, Lord, and I don't have the power. I don't have the energy. There's nothing I can do about it. If you don't intervene, it's, it's a mess. I'm done. Ah, just what I was looking for. That takes humility. And sometimes we can be a proud lot, right? I got this. Yeah, you keep up with that and you're going to get yourself in a pickle. You don't got this. Your life is evidence that you don't have it figured out. And you don't have your act together. Why not say it? Why not admit it? Amen. He spoke to him. After that, he he spoke to him and he required faith and action. Look what it says. He tells him, take up your bed and walk. Take up your bed and walk is a powerful command so that you believe you can. And then it requires your action you got to do what you've been told by Jesus. Jesus had looked at this man in such a way. Think about this. Somewhere in that interaction, Jesus the man, Jesus the man, Jesus is looking at him and something is being communicated so that when Jesus said, do you want to be healed? That man looked up at him and he knew, it's my moment. Yes. And then what's he say? Say, then take up your bed and walk. What? Take up my bed and walk. Don't you see I'm here because I can't walk? But see, Jesus had done something in that moment. Something had been communicated into this man. And this man suddenly had faith to believe that he could take up his bed and walk. But I love the way it ends. And by the way, we cannot make people take the necessary actions required for their healing. We can only challenge them to take up their bed and walk, but we can't make them take up their bed and walk. And I've learned this in my life with people in my family, with people... In ministry, people walking through addictions, how many of you know, have you ever had, have you ever had truth that you just knew would be life-changing? Have you ever had counsel that you knew, if this person will just take what I'm saying and believe it and do something with it, their life can be changed. And you have this and they're not getting it and you just want to be able to take it almost like it's some kind of a substance. You wish you could just kind of take it and go and force it into them? It doesn't work. I used to think that I was extremely persuasive. And if I just used my powers of persuasion and my forcefulness, I could get people to do the right thing. And I learned that people are going to do what people are going to do. But there are times with people when you can say to them, take up your bed and walk. And they know it's my time, it's my moment. And that's what happened here. We can only challenge them, but they have to take up their bed and walk. But then notice, and this is where I end, Jesus healed the man and he took action. The healing actually came first. The order of the events is really important. Look at the text and it says, and at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Did you notice that? At once he was healed. All he had to do was have the intent in his heart, that he was going to do what Jesus said, and while he's there broken and he can't move, Jesus says, take up your bed and walk, healing virtue, he's like, yeah, I'm on that, healing virtue hits his body, and he's up like this, taking up his bed, and he's walking, and that's how it works, he has to heal, he has to restore, but we can obey, and we can follow, amen? Because He loves people, He wants to restore people, He wants us to see people the way He sees them, with compassion, with love, with that sense of intrinsic value that human beings have. Listen, I want to tell you something. Some of us, we look at people that are homeless, addicted to meth on the streets and they're dirty, and they smell, and they're asking for money, and we know they're users in the system many times, and they've got into these cycles, and the cycles have destroyed their families, and they've done terrible things. They've stolen from people, and they've done all... And we look at those people many times, and we see them as a blight on culture and society, and I've heard some really ugly things come out of the mouths of Christians. But I'm going to tell you, beneath all of that stuff, if you could just kind of peel it away... Get past the dirt of that life. Get into the story of that person. There is an amazing human being buried underneath all of the garbage. And that human being is one that Jesus died for. And those are the kinds of eyes that he wants us to have when we look at people.